Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... We don't have an issue with diversity, we have an issue with inclusion across the Australian media landscape. Media Diversity Australia has released a report stating that overall, Australian news and current affairs fail to represent the society they serve. What is the reason behind our imbalanced news representation and what can we do? Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first, former New York Mayor and Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani has been handed a judgment of $221 million to pay two election workers he singled out and defamed in his attempt to discredit the 2020 presidential electoral result. This is not the end for Giuliani either, as more lawsuits are in the pipeline for him as well as Donald Trump. You would think this would affect a Trump presidential campaign, but his lead just gets bigger. Bruce Wolpe is a senior fellow at the U.S. Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, and I asked him why Giuliani seemed to target two ordinary women to accuse them of vote tampering. The the, the whole thing is just completely disgusting and revolting, and uh, we're in a situation where there's no sense of shame here uh, for what was done to these women. He's been proven guilty of defaming them. And um, you'll recall it uh, just this ha- this has arisen from uh, Trump's uh, intent, desire to overturn question and then overturn the election results in Georgia. He lost Georgia. And uh, and in the in the course of doing that, to, quote, prove uh, that the election was, quote, stolen, um, uh, Trump and, and Giuliani, he was really sort of the head, the headmaster, the chief investigator, you know, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, was uh, put together a case that um, the vote counting was rigged, and uh, and he focused on some videotape and and the activities of these two women as they were counting votes, as any responsible officer of the Australia Electoral Commission would do. And they they said there was just immense fraud going on conducted by these women, and their lives became hell. Um, the people they've been they were threatened, they were followed, they couldn't live in their homes. It was horrific and miserable. And they've had the courage to sue for defamation. And and the uh, case was proved that everything said about them were lies. And uh, they have now a measure of justice. However, they reach um, Rudy Giuliani at the end stage of his career, which in which he has been completely discredited and disgraced. He's been he's a lawyer, right? Well, he was New York's great mayor and he was uh, he's a lawyer and he was um, uh, counsel to uh, Donald Trump. And he's been because of his nefarious activities has been disbarred in in New York and in the uh, city of Washington DC so his so he's been ruined and he refuses to acknowledge what has occurred and um unfortunately and, and they will he, ne- they will when, not see any money and, <laughs> he's and broke he, and when he came out of the 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 courtroom proceedings he then doubled down on this and he, he, he said it again everything i said was true it. i mean yeah uh, how much and and has he got this much money? I mean, it's uh, I think uh, it's been uh, gone into it's two hundred twenty one million Australian dollars. So one hundred forty eight. <laughs> it's a lot of money, isn't it? Um, he says he's going to uh, appeal or something. He'll, he probably has to because he can't afford to pay it. He um, he doesn't have any money. He's uh, if he's not bankrupt, he's close to it. 
He's been begging people for money. He asked Trump. Trump did hold a fundraiser for him to raise a few million dollars for legal fees. He's he's done. Thinking about that now, as you'd think that it would be affecting Donald Trump's chances for the next presidential election. But the primaries, the figures, the polls, he's still way out in front, isn't he? He's way out in front of everybody. And the Iowa caucuses are coming up next. And and Iowa is a, is a caucusing state. Uh, yes, which is going to be hard for people, isn't it? Because it's the middle of winter over there, and quite yeah, they love quite it. They love it in Iowa. They, it's so a frozen cornfield. Go to um, events, don't they? Is this it's how it fr- works? frozen cornfields. They go out. Uh, wow. It's it's held in it's held in houses uh, uh, throughout the state. There are ninety nine counties in Iowa. They all have um, caucus uh, gatherings, and they report their results and they're tabulated. And uh, so it's all getting pretty exciting. But at the moment. It, um, yeah. the, the figures that I have in front of me is that is that Nikki Haley is on second uh, with uh, Ron DeSantis at about 12 percent. But Trump's ahead by 25 percentage points. Given everything, all the indictments, the, the trials that are coming, Rudy Julia, um, just all of the uh, mess that he is dealt with legally, he has and the way he's comported himself uh, as the candidate. In other words, I am the presumptive nominee, and you know it, and you love me, and I represent you, and we're going to stick together. That has served him well. His his, his popularity among Republicans has grown over the past year. And so in in all those four states, he is well over 50 percent approval. Now, um, there was a, you know, a field of uh, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson and, and Vivek and uh, a whole bunch of people, along with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who was supposed to be the Trump killer, but he's had a terrible campaign. He doesn't translate personally. And then Nikki Haley, who was sort of the most interesting of the challengers. But the issue that's that's hurting them is Trump is a movement. We like to say uh, people are rusted on here in Australia. The, the Trump voters are welded on to Trump. He says, when they indict me, they're indicting you. In other words, and why are they indicting me? To take me out of politics, drive me off the ticket, make me ineligible to run. And that means nothing stands between radical Democrats and you and your livelihoods. And so uh, I am your champion. So when Nikki Haley attacks Trump, she's attacking his voters. And that's why his voters will not vote for her. That's Mm. why it's so hard for her to attract support. So I think she has a ceiling and I believe Trump, I don't believe she will be successful, even though again, she's probably the one who can beat Biden the easiest. Bruce Walpe, a senior fellow at the U.S. Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, speaking with me there. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, or one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. Not to be outdone by federal government emissions targets announced at COP28, Queensland Premier Stephen Miles committed to a 75% reduction of emissions in that state. This was announced in the wake of the cyclone Jasper-related flooding events in far north Queensland. And with an upcoming election in Queensland, Labor needs a boost in the polls to get across the line after the dumping of Anastasia Palaszczuk as Premier. James Montemayor has this report. As Cyclone Jasper ravaged through far north Queensland, communities are struggling with flood recovery. Climate change is held as the prime suspect for the chaotic weather. Environmental groups are calling for more bipartisan support for climate change in Parliament. Dave Coatman from Queensland's Conservation Council tells us how these floods differ from Queensland's usual tropical weather. 
Yeah, flooding has always been a part of uh, Queensland history. We've had a long history of extreme weather events. What we do know, though, is that with the changing climate, as um, global temperatures get warmer, we are going to see more extreme and more unpredictable weather events. At, at one level, the science is very simple. The more heat there is in the air, the more energy there is in the air, the more water that can be absorbed and the more likely we are to have extreme events like this. And so what this means is that as we are coping with the reality of climate change, we need to prepare for the fact that we are going to have more extreme weather events like this uh, cyclone uh, coming to Queensland in December and resulting in this flooding event. Koopman then said bipartisanship is essential against climate change to provide more political certainty. We can't afford any more time of climate change being a political football. It's a reality. For the Queenslanders on the ground in front of Queensland, it's not a political slanging match, it's a reality. And so we need bipartisanship in addressing the challenges that are coming from climate change. One of the most important things we can do is actually have bipartisan commitment to significantly reducing our emissions in line with the pathway towards 1.5 degrees. And so the Queensland government just announced a 75% emission reduction target. So to reduce Queensland's emissions by 75% from 2005 levels by 2035. Now that's strong and ambitious. We can do it, but it's really important that David Christopher the opposition leader in Queensland, also commits to this because industry, communities like those in front of Queensland deserve certainty not another political football, not another political debate. So that's one of the things we're calling for, is we're calling for the government and the opposition to both commit to taking action on climate and also to acknowledge that climate change is important and has to be addressed in our plan. Dr Jennifer Rayner, head of advocacy at the Climate Council, affirmed this. She said there's encouraging signs from the state government on climate change. It was really exciting to see the first action of Premier Miles being announcing a stronger uh, emissions reduction target for Queensland, because that is a measure that the state had been lagging on for a little while. So we're seeing this fantastic race to the top around the country now as different jurisdictions, different states and territories try and top each other on how much climate action they're going to deliver. And that's really exciting to see. What we need now is some policies and new initiatives that actually back that up. Uh, The Queensland government has their energy and jobs plan, which is delivering a lot of great new investment and new jobs in clean energy right across the state, from the far north to central Queensland and down to the southeast. Um, But what we need are other initiatives that back that in, particularly for households, to see them see the benefits. Because, for example, if households can get solar on their roof or they can get an electric vehicle or um, other ways to cut their emissions, not only are they helping with the climate challenge, but they're also helping with their own cost of living. Dr Rena said climate awareness tends to heighten as a result of wild weather. Disasters and extreme weather events are one of those times when we really see communities and politicians and parties come together to focus on the shared challenges that we have in front of us. Because when homes and lives and livelihoods are on the line, we really don't want to see politics. We want to see communities and politicians coming together to work out how we're going to fix the challenge. That's the kind of approach that we would love to see on climate all year round, because we know that it's only by coming together that we're going to be able to solve a problem this big. Koopman said he hopes that the federal government will follow the lead of the states on climate action. What we have seen now from the Queensland government, the New South Wales government, 
the Victorian government is higher levels of ambition than actually what the federal government is committed to. So very shortly, um, Prime Minister Albanese and uh, Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen will have to announce what Australia's 2035 targets are, and we're calling on the federal government to meet the ambitions of the state. We would expect to see national ambition at least equal to the 75% emissions reduction target that Queensland is committed to. Dave Coatman, Director of Queensland's Conservation Council, ending that report by James Montemayor. The Albanese government announced $70 million of funding for researching and treating eating disorders in Australia. An estimated 1 million plus Australians are living with an eating disorder as part of the funding is going towards organisations and institutes who are already working to support these people. The other $50 million will be going towards a Medical Research Future Fund, providing grant opportunities to help develop areas of eating disorder treatment that can be improved. Josie Liu has this report. Eating disorders are prevalent in Australia, so I asked Hilary Smith, a national manager at the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, what some of the reasons for this are. Well, eating disorders have been prevalent in the Australian community for quite some time. Um, we know data from 2012 estimated that eating disorders affected 1 million Australians back then. And I think in the time since then, we've seen a number of factors which have contributed to a potential increase. One of those is the COVID-19 pandemic. During the pandemic, there were a whole range of new stresses that uniquely affected people at risk of or already experiencing eating disorders. Um, and in the time since, we just haven't seen those eating disorder presentations go back down to pre-pandemic levels as we might have seen for some other mental health conditions. I think some other contributing factors to ED prevalence now include the cost of living crisis where we know um, increasingly greater numbers of Australian people and families are experiencing food insecurity and we know that food insecurity is an emerging area um, which is getting increasing attention as a, a particular risk factor for the development and maintenance of eating disorders. Um, and in addition to that, I think there's the ever-shifting landscape of social media. You know, the, the 2012 stat that we had came from a point in time when social media was as it was then and it is as it is now. And with that, that constant and rapid change, I think that's, that's a lot for people to keep up with with regard to um, the, the way that social media can affect how they feel in their bodies and in their relationship with food and eating. Clearly, a complex range of reasons are contributing to the prevalence of eating disorders, which the government is trying to address through the recent $70 million fund. Um, my understanding is the funds aim to drive innovation in the sector and specifically to address areas within the system of care where we know either that there are existing gaps in services that need to be filled or where we know that there are new ideas that could be tested. The funding will also address mental health more broadly, according to Peter Marks, a national programs manager at the University of Sydney's Inside Out Institute. As I understand it, what the Commonwealth is um, funding is, first of all, the development of a plan of mental health research, so not just in eating disorders, but in mental health more broadly uh, for young people, and that eating disorders will form a really important part of that plan, I hope. So when it comes to treating eating disorders in Australia, what are key areas we need to address? 
there remains more work to be done um, in building the workforce, in ensuring we've got enough clinicians who feel confident and able to do the work of treatment, as well as in confident and able to do the work of um, early identification, early intervention, initial response, shared care. Um, prevention, obviously, within that is another key area where we can keep on doing more um, and, and seeking to prevent more and more eating disorders. Peter Marks also talks about the problem of access as another important area to consider. We've got some good treatments that we know work for some, but not all of um, people with eating disorders. So what we need to do is to increase access to those treatments um, nationally in Australia. We've got a very big country with um, already um, problematic workforce, health workforce, mental health workforce issues. We know that a lot of people who have um, you know, long waiting lists to see psychologists and, and other mental health professionals. So part of what we need to do is to increase access to specialised eating disorder treatments nationally and you know, so that people in rural and regional and remote areas have as good access to treatments as people in metropolitan areas. And that's part of what Inside Out Institute is doing with our e-therapy and our e-clinic platform, which has recently received some funding from the Commonwealth. The government's funding has also reached the NEDC, which Hilary Smith tells us more about. The NEDC has received funds to deliver a project that we've called Right Care, Right Place. And Right Care, Right Place will enable NEDC to work closely with four PHNs, that's primary health networks, covering urban, rural and remote areas, um, and within those to embed local approaches to identifying and responding to eating disorders in a primary care setting. Ultimately, this funding aims to deliver better outcomes for people living with eating disorders. Eating disorders are a problem that can be, uh, you know, we can do a lot to improve the outcome of people with eating disorders. If we have access to good treatments, we have research about treatments that work, and we have a system of care that is um, identifying and providing young people and adults with eating disorders with the support that they need to recover. And that um, this funding will really go some way towards supporting those, those things to happen. Anyone needing support with eating disorders or body image issues is encouraged to contact Butterfly National Helpline on 1800 33 4673. For urgent support, call Lifeline on 131114. Peter Marks, National Programs Manager at the University of Sydney's Inside Out Institute, speaking there with Josie Liu. Hey there, we're the Warren Miller Band and you're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. It is well known that Australia is a multicultural country, but is Australia's media reflecting all aspects of our population makeup? In a recent report issued by Media Diversity, it stated that people of Anglo-Celtic background were overrepresented, whilst people of non-European background remained underrepresented. Alana Tsunavatel asked Mariam Vasada, Chief Executive Officer at Media Diversity, just where is our news and current affairs reporting failing? What that shows is that there is an underrepresentation of people of of people of non-European backgrounds, the culturally diverse people that are categorised as culturally diverse, um, and and when it, there is an underrepresentation when it comes to First Nations talent. Now, since that since 
since having done the first part of that research and then having looked at it again, there has been some improvements. But overall, when you look at a commercial television, we're talking non-European people make up about 1.3% of screen time when it comes to TV news and current affairs. Now, 1.3 across the commercial networks and then reflect on the ABS data, it paints a, a, a very diverse picture of what Australians, uh, Australia's population looks like. And that ultimately means that uh, there is just, you know, not enough culture diversity on our screens. There's not enough First Nations representation. And that, that causes all sorts of issues. In the Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories 2.0, it said that 78% of reporters were Anglo-Celtic, 10% were non-European and 5% were of Indigenous background. What is going on in this final percentage that's causing such a huge gap in terms of which nations are represented on our screens? It's about kind of recognising that across the media industry, similar to other industries, there are systemic barriers in place uh, for people of these various diversity dimensions. Those barriers can exist in terms of not seeing themselves reflected on TV and not seeing them reflected more broadly in media and therefore not thinking that they want to grow up to be a journalist, um, it not being a, a career path that they consider for themselves simply because they don't see themselves reflected in it. It could be that those that do, you know, end up pursuing a career in journalism or, or, or in sort of media-adjacent roles, um, that they then face additional barriers in the workplace that stops them from progressing into leadership positions should they want to do that. What we've seen with Stan Grant in, in the last few weeks, it speaks to speaks to the experiences that we've documented in another piece of research called The Online Safety of Diverse Journalists, which was released in um, the beginning of May. And, and that speaks to uh, a lot of the issues that people of diverse Identities face amplified online abuse as media workers and as, as journalists. And that also has an impact of wanting to drive them out of the industry. And it has a silencing impact. And so following along what you said about Stan Grant, between 2019 and 2022, the percentage of Indigenous people appearing on TV rose from 3.3% to 7%. Now, mm-hmm. is this too little? What can be done to increase this percentage? And how well do you think the Indigenous community is represented on our screens? Sometimes that increase in the number is due to one or two people appearing multiple times on the same channel or across different channels. And what that means is that the couple of First Nations journalists that do exist and and have a level of seniority and experience are effectively, if I can use this term, being recycled across different shows, across different networks. And that speaks to a broader issue of ensuring that we are nurturing um, the up-and-coming First Nations talent and ensuring that they move into these positions so that we're not having to quote-unquote recycle talent. First Nations representation is incredibly important, but even more so in the year of the voice, where we need to have nuanced conversations about what this means. And it needs to be led by people who have 
lived experience. And Stan Grant's example speaks to the fact that no matter how senior you are, you are not immune from racism and systemic issues. And he's, you know, voicing he's voicing those issues in a way that many others can't. What are some recommendations that has been given by Media Diversity and yourself to combat these issues within our media news? We don't have an issue with diversity. We have an issue with inclusion across the Australian media landscape. And inclusion means um, you can't tick a box it, it's a journey. Uh, you need to ensure there's psychological psychological safety in place for journalists of diverse backgrounds. You need to account for the fact that it's one size doesn't fit all when it comes to some of the approaches that you need to take, whether it's the online safety of journalists of diverse backgrounds, whether it's the, the structural support they need in place in the workplace to ensure that they're thriving. Marion Vaisada, CEO of Media Diversity Australia, speaking there with Alana Sue Navratil. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.